Paul is speaking about this universe in this universal language. You've got the old Adam who has the whole of humanity in sin. And then you have Christ who releases the whole of humanity from sin. But to be released from sin, one needs to be in Christ. So how do you get in Christ? You get plunged into Christ. Welcome back to the Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast with Abba Jeremy Driscoll and seminarians of Mount Angel. Abba Jeremy is teaching four of us seminarians how the celebration of Mass informs our theology, a method which he calls Theology at the Eucharistic Table. And we invite you to join us in our discussions. If you learn from this podcast, we ask you to leave a review on iTunes, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theologyatmountangel.com, that's theologyatmtangel.com. And to personally invite a seminarian, a priest, a seminary professor, or a close friend to listen to our show. We hope you enjoy. As you know, we're going to be sort of shifting gears a little bit. Um, Abba Jeremy, a couple of episodes back said, I'd love to sit down with you all and uh, do a little bit of theology of baptism out of Romans. Um, and the idea would be just to zone in on a text and kind of slow down and work our way through it. And as, this will be Romans chapter 6. And so it's a shifting gears, but not completely. I wanted to open with some words from Tertullian, who's writing around the year 160-170. Uh, he's defending the practice of baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he ties it to the life of the church in this way. He says, where there are the three, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there is the church, which is a body of three. Um, so he definitely ties baptism, church, and the Trinity together in his words and his defense of baptism. So we're moving from Trinity to baptism, which is not really a, complete shifting of gears, maybe just thinking in a different key. Um, so with that, where do we want to begin, Father, when we, when we look at Romans chapter 6? It's one of those rabbits that we promised. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's true. It's one of those what? You remember the rabbits at the beginning of the first episode, right? That's right. We said, we, you know, we were having a conversation, but every once in a while there were detours, and they were like little rabbits. Oh, I remember that. But no, well, this this is a good topic. If we if we look at Romans six, though, uh, we're in a typical New Testament baptismal context, uh, where you know we hear of baptism uh, in that particular chapter, but the other places in the New Testament where you really hear of baptism is in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but there, baptism is is always baptism in the in the name of Jesus. The only place in the New Testament that we have baptism in the name of the Trinity is in Matthew's gospel, the command of the Lord to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So that Trinitarian issue needs to, uh, Trinitarian shape of baptism is part of the church's understanding of the whole movement of the action of the Trinity in, in our salvation. The more primitive sense is Baptism into the name of Jesus, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what that means. 
in, in Romans 6 is a very good example of that. And then the way in which uh, baptism is, uh, is spoken about in the Acts of the Apostles, where it, it, on the day of Pentecost, uh, in, after uh, Peter preaches Jesus, uh, the Jesus who was crucified is risen, the people are struck to the heart and they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Um, and so the Acts of the Apostles launches into all these great scenes of baptism uh, in which the Holy Spirit is given in baptism and, and all that sort of stuff. But what we have in chapter 6 of the letter to the Romans is a very strong uh, baptismal theology condensed in, into, uh, you know, well, eight verses. And then sort of developing on. If we if we locate it in the context of the whole letter, Paul in chapter five has done something very important theologically. Uh, he draws a parallel uh, between Adam and Christ, and the disobedience of Adam, which brought the and he says the sin of one man brings death into the whole world for everybody, and everyone is caught up in the domain of death because of Adam's sin. And he says, now we have a new thing in Christ. He doesn't, he, he doesn't use the term new Adam, but in effect, he's describing Christ as a new Adam. And he says, by the, the righteous deed of one man, Christ Jesus, all are justified. It's, um, it's summarized in chapter... Five, verse 18 and 19, where his whole argument is summed up. He says, to sum up then, just as a single offense brought condemnation to all, a single righteous act brings all acquittal and life. Just as through one man's disobedience all become sinners, so through one man's obedience all become just. This is amazing. All become just through Christ as opposed to all become just by doing just things. So, so, so we are giving, we are, we are being given Christ's own righteousness and we are given that in baptism. That's where that's, that's the context of coming into chapter six. Uh, this text uh, from Romans uh, chapter six is read at the at the Paschal Vigil, just before people are baptized, and so that's a that's a uh, it's a marvelous text to read uh, before the baptismal liturgy. So I'll read the text as it occurs in the lectionary, or in any case, I'll get started reading the text uh, as it occurs in the lectionary. But it's good for us to imagine it. Uh, at the end of the long vigil, we've heard all the Old Testament readings, uh, and now, and we've sung the Gloria, and after the Gloria, we hear this text of, of Romans, which will be followed by uh, one of the synoptic accounts of resurrection, which will be followed by baptism. Now, all that's going to help us understand the text itself. This is what we've always been calling liturgical exegesis, that the, the fullness of the text comes out when we imagine its liturgical context. So the text reads like this from the lectionary. 
A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. Let's just stop there for a minute and see what we have. It begins with a rhetorical question. Are you unaware that, you know, and a rhetorical question, it means it's got an obvious answer. Uh, except I, whenever I hear this, I, I always want to tweak everybody and say, yeah, I think we are unaware. <laughs> listen, listen, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. He's like saying, hold on, everybody. Think that through. That's not a throwaway phrase. What does it mean to say you are baptized into the death of Jesus? Have you been baptized yet? I've been baptized. We've all been baptized. What's it mean? It means we've been baptized into his death. The word baptism. Literally, it means to be plunged, plunged into water, right? It's a ritual action. But the plunging into water accomplishes being plunged into the death of Christ. Now, how can that happen, that we're plunged into the death of Christ? Because Because of what Christ did on the cross is the single righteous act by one man that belongs to all. So how do all get it? They get it by being plunged into his righteous act. All that is, are you unaware? Yes, we are. <laughs> but we want to we wanna be aware of that being plunged into his death. And then and he, and he, he puts it, not only his death, but he goes on and pushes it a step farther. What happens after uh, you die? You're buried. So we were indeed buried with him through baptism into death. So that, and then something is going to happen to us similar to what happens to Christ. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. One of the things I want to draw your attention to here is that um, other texts, later Pauline texts, like uh, Colossians and Ephesians, will speak of you have died with Christ and have risen with Christ. This text doesn't say that, that you have risen with Christ. It says you have risen to newness of life. The context is actually a new way of living. He's not talking about a literal resurrection from the dead, many more than he's talking about uh, a literal death. And that's what, that's what uh, Paul develops uh, in the verses that follow. Now, here we come to what I always say is a problem in the translation uh, and all, virtually all the English translations get this wrong. You'll recognize this as a phrase. For if we have grown into union with him through a death like his, 
we shall also be united with him in the resurrection. You recognize that phrase, right? A death like his. Well, let's ask the question, what, how is it that we have experienced a death like his? Well, actually, we haven't. <laughs> he was crucified. We haven't had that. We, we haven't been crucified. We're, we're still alive. So what is that? What, it's a bad translation is what it is. Uh, if, if, let's translate closely according to the Greek. It says, for if we have been united with him, it literally in the Greek, through a likeness of his death. And the word likeness there, homoion in Greek, is a is a is a technical term from liter, literature uh, vocabulary that uh, the it's referring to the ritual action of baptism. The ritual action of baptism is a likeness of the death of Christ. How so? You get plunged underwater. If you stand there, you die. You get plunged underwater. You're buried. You come up from the water. That's a likeness of resurrection. So the ritual action of baptism accomplishes our coming in to Christ's actual death and resurrection. And you see the difference in that? So that it that actually means something mm-hmm. rather than say, if you've been united with him in a death like his, well, uh, what would that be? Well, Paul's going to go on to explain then what this is like. We know that basically, well, I'll go ahead and say it in my own words before Paul, because I want to pause and see if you're following and hear from you. But uh, the, the newness to life that we rise to has to be a new way of living. This is a moral resurrection, if you will. And that we can now live no longer in sin. Because what we've died to is sin. We haven't died a literal biological death. We have not been crucified, literally. But through baptism, we have been an old sinful person in us has been crucified, buried, and risen again. All that is is tucked away in the text. So let me just... Pause and see if you're following, because it gets better. But uh, let's. Uh, how are we doing? I, you know, I, as you were reading verse four, especially coming at it from the Trinitarian aspect, how baptism really does um, put us in in a particular relationship to both Christ, but also to the Father. And I'm looking at the, the verse that says, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, but then St. Paul qualifies that by saying, by the glory of the Father. So that when we look at baptism and the way we are initiated into relationship of mere identity with Christ, it's by the glory of the Father that this is accomplished. Yeah. Um, so it establishes in that relationship um, with the It's something you don't, you don't hear that maybe driven home so often. Uh, often baptism is, unfortunately, I think it falls into that me and Jesus um, maybe way of thinking. 
but recognizing that even when we talk about Christ's resurrection, it's done by God's glory. The Father raises Jesus up. Jesus doesn't just get up of his own will. Yeah. He's like, all right, I'm going to get up now. It's Sunday. Yeah, all right. Um, he waits in the tomb for the Father to lift him up. Um, and maybe, I, yeah, I, I guess that's that's something that when you're reading it now, I feel it's not maybe as pronounced when we talk about baptism also, the place of the Father in our being raised up. Yeah, see, in that same verse, that's verse 4 that Nelson is citing, is the glory of the Father that raises Christ. And then look how the verse finishes. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too, he doesn't say we too might be raised from the dead. He says we too might live a new life. Now, before we die biologically. Yeah. We live a new life. And this is this is what baptism accomplishes in us. Wow. Uh, Go ahead, Caleb. Do you have a thought? Well, my thought was that I don't know that I can add much to this, um, but I'm definitely learning a lot. <laughs> just, <laughs> just with you, Father Abbott, explaining, explaining the verse more. And then, you know, talk, Brother Israel talking about the glory of the Father, how important that is in raising up Christ. Um, and I guess my thought is that the importance of, of learning, learning this and diving deeper into it and understanding our baptism more. Because I didn't, I would say I knew pretty much nothing about the theology of baptism before our RCIA class and a couple of the classes at seminary. Um, which is another topic of maybe <laughs> in catechism and parishes, we need to talk about baptism more because I'd been told a few times like, Oh, baptism is important. And I never really like knew why or, you know, Oh yeah, it's how you come into the church. But um, I actually wrote a paper for RCIA. We were asked to write on this verse um, from Romans. And so I did dive into it more, but even, even, what you've been saying, Father Abbott, has helped me. Um, but one thing I, I guess I learned in that is that, you know, you always say the cross, like the cross is our salvation. Christ dying on the cross saves us. But that's, a, I guess, I don't know, maybe you can tell me if this is right or not, if I'm understanding this right, but that's more of a universal Christ died for sins of all. But then baptism is kind of where that becomes personal. Where we're talking about this, being buried with Christ or, and having a death. And I liked how you explained it's not like his, but in a likeness to his death, which makes, you know, the symbolism of baptism ties it so much more to the symbolism of baptism. Um, but it's that baptism that makes it our personal. We, we are able to receive that salvation of the cross that Christ did die for all, or he died on the cross for all the sins of mankind, but that to personally accept that salvation, we need baptism and to be united in that, that death of the cross. And so then rise to new life with him. Yeah, that's exactly the movement from chapter five that I was talking about. In chapter five, Paul is speaking about this universe in this universal language. You've got the old Adam who has the whole of humanity in sin and then you have Christ who releases the whole of humanity from sin. But to be released from sin, 
one needs to be in Christ. So how do you get in Christ? You get plunged into Christ. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the next verse, in fact, in verse 6, connects it with, re- with crucifixion. So, Caleb, you said, mm-hmm. okay, the death of Christ you know, is like universally there, but it, how, how does it get applied? Mm-hmm. Well, the crucifixion gets applied to me in baptism. Listen to verse 6. This we know. Our old self was crucified with him. So this, our old self, we are, we are to, well, Paul says this in Second Corinthians, if you are in Christ, new creation. And, and we got to take that, we're, quite literally, we are like new creatures because of Christ. We are already living his resurrection uh, because the, uh, the old but the old self was crucified with him so that we might uh, be slaves to sin no longer. A man who is dead has been freed from sin. Why is that? A man who is dead has been freed from sin because if you're dead, you can't sin anymore. <laughs> this is the point. I mean, you, you have to die to sin. So if you die... With Christ, you haven't died literally, but you can really, you can die to sin in Christ, and that's what he says. That's what happens. This is, the rhetorical question gets sharper as we move. Are you unaware? Yes, I'm unaware of this whole damn old darn thing. <laughs> but let's get aware of, of of how how this is, so that we might be slaves to sin no longer. A dead man has been freed from sin. So if we have died with Christ, meaning died to sin, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we are also to live with him. Mm, again, not uh, not, ra- not rise with him. He doesn't say that right there, yeah. at least. Yeah. Um, no. But live now with him. Yeah. Caleb, I like something you said just now, that when we look at the shift in translation, maybe a more proper translation, the likeness of his death. You made the point just now that actually that ties even more strongly the cross and baptism. When you look at baptism as the likeness of his death, rather than a death like his. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I had understood it that way mm-hmm. reading it that, you know, he's talking about baptism and, you know, we don't literally die. It's more symbolic. But it's great to see that the the translation of the Greek or the Greek is more in in unity with that. Yeah, that just here's a bonus for all you guys uh, uh, in the history of theology. That verse and the use of that word homoion in that verse, a likeness of his death, was noticed uh, in the patristic church, and and people picked sacramental theology developed around this mm-hmm. that a sacrament has to be a ritual likeness. That's one of the, so this word likeness was one of the words for sacrament. Uh, another word for sacrament is image. Uh, uh, figure is another word. Type is another word. All those words uh, converge around a developing sacramental theology. But the Eucharist 
with the action of bread and wine is also a likeness of his death. It, we don't like the Eucharist does not enact a crucifixion. But the Eucharist is the, the sacrifice of Calvary present. How? By a likeness. The likeness is this bread broken is my body. This wine poured out is my blood. It's a likeness. But the full reality, this is the sacramental theology, the full reality of what Christ did is in the likeness. And so accomplishes in those who have communion in the likeness, accomplishes the same reality. But this is great sacramental theology in general, not just in this one verse. But from this one verse, the fathers argued, oh, you see, he says it's a likeness. And then they go around looking for likenesses and they find them all. Yeah. It's almost as if we could say, you know, going back to that universal sense that Paul's talking about in chapter five, when we he's speaking more about Adam, so all of mankind participating in the death that sin brought into the world. And then we look at Christ as a sort of a, a type of all mankind. Um, but, uh, oh, sorry, something came up. Uh, so then we look at Christ in that universal role as well, especially on the cross, and we see the glory, the magnificence, the, the you know the great mercy, the great love there. And it's almost like we have to say, but it's not enough that Christ does all of this until you're plunged into baptism. What share have you in all of this? Yeah. Um, and it's almost uh, like even thinking about it, it's almost scandalous to to say, what do you mean it's not enough that Christ died on the cross? What do you mean we have to do? But it, it's, I think it's a good question. So what if Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago? What does, how do I get there 2,000 years ago? Or maybe how does he come to me 2,000 years later? Yeah. Um, and it sounds like maybe something Paul's already dealing with here is with the Romans is, and this is just like, you know, two, three decades after the resurrection. Well, he's telling them how that's going to happen from now on. You don't have to go back in time 30 years to get that that happened on the cross. Um, See, you can connect that again with what I said at the beginning about Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, when he preaches the crucified is risen mm -hmm. and the people are struck to the heart. That's the way. So when Christ's death and resurrection is proclaimed uh, and you're struck to the heart, then what you do you get plunged into it that's just what you were saying and uh, and there's this sort of general movement of the proclamation results in baptism and then baptism results in newness of life in the community and of course that, that that's picked up ritually so at the paschal vigil where you do hear the proclamation from creation to resurrection you know those long readings and then what happens baptism yeah um, and then what happens after baptism eucharist <laughs> as the full likeness mm -hmm. uh, the likeness so that we become one body one spirit 
with the crucified and risen Lord. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Nelson, I think I don't know if I cut you off a little bit ago. I have a couple of thoughts. Um, one thing that was coming up was the material that we learn at the Institute for Priesthood Formation, IPF. They talk about this movement from relationship to identity to mission. So here, it could be tempting to think about in regards to our sins, to think about what do I need to do to remove sins from my life? What do I need to do to, in order for me to sin less or to eliminate sin? And what they talk about is how that's contrary to what the gospel has revealed, to what the Trinity has revealed to us, that fundamentally there is our relationship as sons and daughters we're sons through by virtue of the baptism. That's the tie in here by virtue of our baptism. We're sons and daughters of, of God. And so we have that relationship with the father. And as we grow in that relationship, we receive that identity in a deeper and deeper way. And the more that we live as the more that we grow into that identity, just naturally we live as sons and daughters, mm-hmm. which means living in the way that, St. Paul is talking about here and that we're unpacking that we have died to sin. Mm-hmm. So the sinfulness in our lives is what has been crucified is what has died. And now the way that we live is one that the point is not that it's sinless. The point is that it says son and daughter of God. Right. Being sinless is an extension or another side of another side of the coin or mm-hmm. whatever image we want to use the next chapter of the same book. But the point is not that it is not sinfulness. The point is sonship and daughterhood is childlikeness yeah. is being, is living, is being the, in the, is being the image of, of God and growing in that. Is that, is, is that accurate for that? I'm not sure what you mean when you say the point is not sin, sinlessness. What do you mean by that? What I'm coming from is a maybe a tendency towards Pelagianism of I'm going to work to purify myself. I'm going to I'm going to do I'm going to put in the effort to stop sinning, and mm-hmm. once I do that then I'll be worthy of God's love. Yeah. So a reaction against that to say, no, actually God has adopted me as his son and I have been, my sinfulness has been crucified, has died with him as I've been plunged into baptism. And now if I live as such, then I would not sin. Yeah. Well, I think what Paul is, is concerned about here is that we realize that what what enables us to live free from sin is the power of Christ in our lives and not our own efforts and that it is that it is a gift freely given on the other hand he's concerned that uh hearing a message like that people will say will say something like well, then it doesn't matter if I sin because it's Christ. It's Christ who's going to do it. And actually, I skipped that verse, but uh, 
chapter six begins with, uh, you know, he's in chapter five, he's done this magnificent thing that I've referred to a number of times now that, uh, that Adam messed it up and Christ has totally fixed it for the whole of humanity. And then he says, uh, this is chapter six, verse one. What then are we to say? Let us continue in sin that grace may abound. In other words, going to say, God, God's forgiven everything in Christ. What are we going to, so can we continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, certainly not. How can we who have died to sin go on living in it? So, and, but, but he's, he's not putting the weight on our moral effort. He's putting the weight on what actually happens to us if we were aware, are you not aware, what would actually happen to us if we were aware that in Christ we have died to sin? Yeah, it sounds something you were saying, Nelson, it sounds like what the Abbot was talking about, new creation um, that is affected in us at baptism, such that what makes sin so heinous, especially after baptism, is that we are dead to sin already. So how is it possible that we continue living in it? Whereas, you know, for one who was still living according to, uh, to the disobedience of Adam, it was, you know, quote unquote natural that he would continue to sin. Um, we, that's, I think, a, another topic. But given baptism, given the reality of baptism and what baptism has done in us, it shifts the focus. I mean, it's, and it's almost like we, we can look at two movements. It seems when we look at baptism, the adoption part of it, that, that, that we have been configured to Christ in a death like his, so that we can live in him now. But then on the other hand, there's the question of sin. So I don't know if, if you would say those are two different movements, maybe the, the adoption as sons in Christ. And then sin was kind of getting in the way with that. So is it like get rid of sin first so that you can be a son or in being adopted as a son that gets rid of sin? Or, yeah. Um, it seems like both are happening in baptism according to just what we've read so far. Yeah. I think that uh, even if you think of the, of the context of the, uh, of the Paschal Vigil and people being baptized, you know, all the preparation of their catechumenate has been working on changing your life and ridding yourself of sin. Paul, in, in a chapter like this, you know, we, we see the logic of his movement of how deeply Christ himself is the, is, is the operative agent of our salvation. Elsewhere in Paul's letters, though, what we come across is... Um, is very practical problems like we're facing in our own lives now. You take think of the Galatian church, for example, where he says, you know, you're living by the flesh. You're not living under the spirit. And all of these, all this bitter rivalry and fighting, this is happening to baptized people. There's plenty of sin still happening in baptized people. But Paul is always uh, saying, um, this is outrageous blasphemy of your condition in Christ. And so the way you get over that is not by 
I don't know, grunting real hard, not sinning. The way you get over that is by getting in touch with the renovating power of Christ, who in the spirit gives us these gifts that enables us to be good. Love, joy, peace, patient endurance, bigness of soul, uh, all those gifts of the spirit that are given to us because we are in Christ. And then you, then you loop around to your, to your point, I think, Nelson, is that, that then we are living in this relationship with God as sons and daughters often, but it's, it, it's all his doing. It's none of this is earned. And, uh, but, uh, but when we say none of this is earned, it doesn't mean we don't care about whether we have sins or not. We have to care in the same way that a son would care not to offend his father. Yeah, if if I can ask just to, just to sharpen the question a little bit, and I think I mean I think you've been answering the question that I want to ask, but maybe maybe to maybe to focus it on on a practical on a practical level. Why, if I've been baptized in sin, and or if I've been baptized, <laughs> <laughs> if I've been plunged into Christ's death. And I know what that means. I, in other words, I had, or I had some understanding of, of that before the last 30 minutes. And now I have a little bit of a deeper understanding after the, this conversation, but why do I continue to sin? And more importantly, how can I not do that anymore? Yeah. Uh, can I add to that yeah. question? Uh-huh. Maybe. Kind of, yeah, kind of along the lines of that is it like what is it about just knowing this that just the knowing will give me the power or will I don't know I'm thinking like you know like when you're like in video games you unlock that feature of your character or like <laughs> like what will what is it about just knowing and being aware that it'll do that is that I don't know if that kind of goes with what you were asking Nelson if the answer is in knowing then it goes in it or if part of the answer is you know and then yeah then that then that would add to that layer of the answer or the question checking his bible <laughs> well no i mean the question you're asking nelson uh, is the very question that paul asks in the next chapter uh chapter seven did this good thing then become death for me no rather sin in order to seen clearly as sin used for what to bring about death. Uh, we know that the law is spiritual, whereas I am weak flesh sold into the slavery of sin. I cannot even understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do, but what I hate. This is, this is what, and, and, and he just goes on moaning about this. Uh, and and he just concludes in the end uh, that he, he he just exclaims aloud, "But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus." <laughs> and this is this is this is him saved from that, mm. 
And and then at verse eight, I mean, this whole letter, I just, we dove into chapter six, but you can't just dive into six verses. You got to see what came before and what came after chapter eight. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's the secret again, being in Christ Jesus, even though you cannot do the good you want to do. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes, which helps those who are searching for content similar to ours to find our show, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theologyatmountangel.com, that's theologyatmtangel.com, and to tell your friends about our podcast, especially the seminarians, priests, and seminary professors whom you know. Above all, We ask you to pray for us seminarians, priests, monks, and professors at Mount Angel Abbey and Seminary, and to take the content from this episode into your own prayer. Until next time.